Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. I'm going to come clean. I was hooked on the Netflix series Messiah. I would say that, wouldn't I? I'm a theologian after all. If you're planning to catch up with it, then, spoiler alert, turn down the volume on your device for just a minute. A young Christ-like preacher appears in present-day Syria urging peace, love, and unity. He soon accumulates thousands of followers, and after healing the victim of a police shooting in Jerusalem, he escapes from an Israeli police cell only to appear in Texas, where he saves a Baptist church from a tornado. The Israeli police, the CIA, the US Homeland Security are all out to silence him. He's a threat. Well, we're thinking about messianism this week on Naked Reflections. It's a deep-seated Abrahamic tradition, and it can also be a cover for con artists and megalomaniacs. And a belief in the Messiah can also be a refuge for the deluded, as well as to the faithful. Here's a clip from someone who the Naked Scientist called Dolly talking about her experience of these matters. They told me to go recruit disciples. Um, he said, you can't change the world without disciples. So I went into Morrison's, and there was this guy trying to read which TCP was going to have. Was going to have the small, smaller bottle or big bottle. I said, you don't need TCP, you need Jesus in your life. He told me to F off. <laughs> But actually, I didn't manage to recruit some interest. The voices around the kind of Jesus thing were not harsh. They were quite benevolent. Benevolent but dangerous as well, because they would say, you know, you're invincible, step in front of a bus to prove it. With me to discuss messianism are Dr. Ilaria Benocchi from the Art History Faculty, whose PhD was submitted this very day. Yes, thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations. And Dr. Tobias Muller here at the Wolf Institute, and Elisa Simon, co-Jewish chaplain at the University of Cambridge. The sort of messianism that we had described in that clip was, of course, rather extreme. But let's take a step back in a more measured way. Elisa, what does the word Messiah mean? Where does it come from? So Messiah comes from the word uh, Mashiach in Hebrew, which literally means um, anointed in oil. And uh, it in in the... Jewish tradition, it comes from the idea of a king. So a king, according to Jewish law, you need to anoint him in oil. And then he becomes mashuach, he becomes holy by this oil in order to become the king. And the idea is is that the Messiah is going to become from the David uh, line of kingship, and he will be one of his great, 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 great grandchildren. And so that's literally, 
it's this connection to God. He is going to be somebody who kind of uh, returns us to our kingdom at the end of the days, and that's where it comes from. And, of course, in, um, in Greek it was translated into? Uh, well, Christos, uh, I believe. Um, so um, the idea was taken up that uh, Jesus, um, um, as has been interpreted in Christian tradition, the Messiah um, also has been anointed, must be anointed. Um, and this uh, uh, tradition of anointing actually was, uh, I think, part of Jewish culture of, of that day, but also of um, um, non-Jewish pagan uh, ritual across Asia Minor. So uh, that we see an interesting adaptation of this trope of anointing um, and thereby uh, telling the people and showing the people that this Jesus person must be someone really special. So this is where we get Jesus Christ from, Jesus the Messiah. And that link between the Messiah and Jesus is, you might call, typological, certainly yeah. in Christian tradition, Ilaria. Just tell us about that in the artistic realm. Well, the idea of a prophecy and of a connection between the Old Testament and New Testament informs a very specific type of imagery that is very interesting and is characteristic of the Middle Ages and then the Renaissance. The idea of typology. You would have it, for instance, in um, illustrated Bibles for the poor with minimal text and everything was image. And you would have a central image from with an episode of the New Testament called Antitype. Uh, for instance, the apparition of Christ to Mary Magdalene, the Noli Metangere. And you would have two on the side two other images called types from books of the Old Testament that were considered um, a sort of a to prophesize uh, the event in the New Testament. So in the case of the Noli Metangere, for instance, you would have on the one hand the Song of Songs, the bride saying, I found my loved one and I'm bringing it to my mother's house. And on the other side, um, you know, um, from the book of Daniel, Daniel in the lion's den, and the idea that the king finds him alive again because he was blameless, he was considered blameless. So the idea of allegory and the similarities between these episodes informed the readings of these images. And it's all about prophecy. It's all about prophecy. So does the Messiah, Elisa, have prophetic elements, not just kingly elements from the Jewish point of view? Yes, he does. There are many. It's believed that in each generation there is a Messiah that is living amongst us, and he has the ability to kind of be prophetic and tell us what is about to happen. And there are even a few prophets um, that are thought to be in Jewish tradition to have been prophetic um, and uh, have abilities to become Messiah. But it is believed that this um, potential has not been realized in every single generation, and every single generation hasn't been good enough, quote-unquote, to have a Messiah and to be kind of um, taken by God. Uh, but it is very much an idea that's connected, that if you're a Messiah, you, you have an ability to prophesize. You are also a prophet. And there have been a number of Jews who claim to be the Messiah from the Jewish perspective, Jesus just being one of them. So we've had uh, Shabtai Tzvi in the 17th century, and many Jews believed that he was indeed the Messiah, as many Jews believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah at the time. I think the most interesting um, example is what happened last century. It's in the 20th century. We have uh, the seventh rab Rebbe of Chabad. Chabad is one of the sects in Jewish tradition. He is believed to be the Messiah. And this caused a very big debate in the Jewish world. Do we really have a Messiah? And it was after the Holocaust, so you can understand where this is coming from. And one of the most important adjudicators in uh, the Jewish world of the 20th century, Harav Shach, says a very famous quote stating that Chabad is the closest religion to Judaism. So that is something very quite offensive to Chabad. Um, but I think 
the meaning of this quote, the, far, the fact that it's so strong is because every single time there has been a sect in Judaism that has promoted this idea that they have found the Messiah, it has kind of been debunked by the adjudicators and the rabbis saying, no, 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 he is not the Messiah, calm down. But the claim to be the Messiah doesn't take you outside of Judaism, does it? That's an interesting uh, observation. I think today Chabad is still within the Jewish world. I think sects of ultra-Orthodox Judaism are trying to take Chabad out. And this is something that I think we'll, co- we'll see in the coming century. Do they manage to stay in or are they taken out like the Shabtaut, like Shabtai Tzvi was taken out? What I find really interesting about that uh, when having my first uh, encounters with uh, Lubavitch and, and Chabad is they figured out at some point, I think they had a big ad in the New York Times, like a whole page telling the Jewish world that they should um, accept uh, the rabbi of Lubavitch as the Messiah. So also kind of the, the ways these messages are being transformed. Because if, for whatever reason, you think you have found the Messiah, how do you tell other people? And that, of course, uh, causes uh, traditions to invent new forms of uh, communication, to use media that they maybe otherwise wouldn't use. And that's, of course, also where the, the imagery and the performance, I guess, uh, comes in. It's, it's a very creative moment, um, as it were, this, this uncovering of, of a Messiah. Well, yes, absolutely. I, it makes me think uh, immediately of a theatrical text, Waiting for Godot, and the idea, of course, of life as a constant wait for this Godot or perhaps God to come and the fact that, you know, the main characters are just lost in this reality they don't fully understand. So what you were saying earlier, Elisa, uh, regarding the many comings of the Messiah um, reminds me, in fact, of a very important painting for the Jewish tradition has become part of the Jewish heritage, even though it wasn't made by a Jewish artist, uh, Paul Clay's Angelus Novus. It was made in 1920, and it was a reflection on the idea of an angel that is looking at something that is um, coming away from and is reflecting on something that is coming away from with these massive wings that seem to not support him as well. Uh, the Jewish philosopher Walter Benjamin purchased it and made it the center of his own reflection on the repetition of history. The fact that this angel is looking backwards, is looking at the storm in paradise, and he can't look forward at what ex- awaits him, which is, again, yet another tragedy, yet another repetition, yet another failed moment of revelation. And um, it's quite interesting that Benjamin considered it the most important painting in his collection, When he wrote his uh, thesis on history and he wrote about this painting, only one year later he was captured and then he killed himself to avoid being sent to camp. So art interprets this idea of messianism, of looking forward and looking backwards and inspires very important reflections in this sense. I think what you just said is is really important because there is a sense in Judaism where some people look back to see, to allocate people who could have been the Messiah. And then Ishayao Leibovitch, who was a very, very smart philosopher of the 20th century, um, kind of negates the idea of messianism in Judaism and says that the idea of messianism is that he is always coming. He's never actually going to arrive. It's only looking at the horizon, the, the horizon that we can never get to. Well, um, one of the interesting features, it seems, uh, of Messianism is actually uh, a repetition, as it were. So um, despite the fact that often 
the coming of the Messiah in one way or another should signal the end of an era or kind of the fulfillment of something and really kind of ushering something completely new, a new world, redemption, whatever. It seems that in the history of humanity, in the history of religion, what the Messianic does is that it institutes this quest uh, of the coming of the Messiah, who might be the Messiah, but it seems to repeat itself. And over and over again, I'm asking uh, the question um, who uh, the Messiah eventually might be and how they're also uh, combined maybe with other figures, as we've seen in the um, Islamic tradition as well with the, in the Shia tradition, for instance, the, 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 mach, uh, uh, the, the hidden imam and the mahdi coming and then potentially coming together, or is it the same thing? Um, uh, so I think different types of messiahs also coming together and reading the signs of the age um, is a particular yeah, question that we uh, bring to our world and um, w- maybe uh, world wars of course climate change whatever what are the signs of the age that question comes through in messianism as well i suppose so i'm looking at you uh, elisa sort of the concept of repetition in, in in judaism and the repetition in books like mishneh torah is is, is central no I think so. And, and, and it's interesting to see that there is a sense that um, you never give up. You always repeat asking for the Messiah to come. It's almost like um, hoping that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. So there is an idea that both in Messianism and in the coming back of the temple that is connected to each other today in Judaism. I would like to introduce maybe one more positive uh, note on that waiting because kind of Godot obviously is a very important point. And waiting in our society, I think, very often is considered to be something that is bad because it means non-fulfillment. In the tradition that I grew up uh, in the New Apostolic Church, the possibility of the imminent second coming of Christ was very much used to actually focus on the present. So I remember as a child going home once after a service and thought, it might be that that he comes today. And what would that do with my life if I knew this was the last day of my life? So I think it, it inserts actually a certain attention for the present and appreciation of the present because it could end very soon so that waiting can also be an expectation i think can have a a positive moment as well let's wait for one moment on that thought tobias you're listening to naked reflections with me ed kessler not the messiah and my guests this week are ilaria benocchi tobias muller and elisa simon At some point, Messianism merges into charismatic group leadership activated by some kind of vision. At a basic level, it also seems to apply to animals as well as human beings. Here's the science broadcaster Ginny Smith speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast. Well, I've seen a really interesting study that looks at how animals choose their leaders and whether they do it in the same way that humans do. And they examined a range of different animals. So they looked at Elephants, dolphins, lions, chimps, meerkats, zebras, hyenas and capuchin monkeys. And they compared them with eight different human societies who live in groups ranging from 10 to 25,000 people. So they were looking at how these different societies chose their leaders because they're all um, societies that live in groups. They have to make decisions about where to move to, where to forage to find food, how to resolve conflicts. So they all need leaders of some kind. This question of leadership, Alaria, how how is that depicted? Well, this is very interesting. The idea of a leader who's born and would lead, you know, his people into a new age is a constant in history, is a constant in literature. I'm thinking about, for instance, the Emperor Augustus was described as the initiator of the Golden Age in Vilgis Enate. And then, interestingly enough, 
when in the Middle Ages the Enneade was interpreted, was moralized by the Christian writers, um, the passage where the coming of a child who would bring a new golden age was interpreted as a, you know, the coming of Christ, because of course Christ is born under Augustus in Palestine. And so art reflects often these sort of allegories, these parallels, and plays with them. Um, there's plenty of decorations, plenty of altar species who show the new leader as the initiator of a golden age. And it's quite interesting that my area of specialism is, in fact, portraits of um, great leaders in the guise of uh, mythological characters or religious heroes. And we have plenty during the Renaissance and afterwards dressing up as Orpheus, as Augustus, as a saint, as, I don't know, Caesar, uh, and in this way, they appropriate the sense of leadership and coming and prophecy. What about female leaders, Ilaria? Everyone you've mentioned is very male, and I'm very aware in, in you know, University of Cambridge terms, it's, uh, there are a lot of men around. But we have very interesting cases of women being both artists or subjects. I can think, for instance, about the Queen Christina of Sweden, a famous convert to Catholicism who moved to Rome and was a patron of Bernin in the 17th century. And when the statues of the muses are discovered, the ancient Roman statues of the muses are discovered in Hadrian's villa at Tivoli, she decides to have her portrait, her head, planted onto one of them so that she could become the muse, the protector of the theatre. And she chose the muse Malpomene. So there are absolutely leaders and they have the same sense of their own importance and the way they represent themselves follow these patterns as well. Messianic movements have a bad press, a bad association for so many people. Elisa, isn't it just dangerous? Shouldn't we be looking towards a messianic age rather than a messianic figure? I think looking for a messianic age would be more progressive and definitely maybe more enlightened. Um, but I think for the religious believing person, that is hard um, to diverge from the tradition. And while, while also I think while Tobias was talking, I was thinking about the fact that there is a very strong tradition in Judaism that will actually have two messiahs. One of the messiahs will be Mashiach ben Yosef and the other one, so the son of Joseph, and the other one um, would be Mashiach ben David, the son of David. And they have two separate tasks. One of them is to fight the fight and to win the war before the messiah can actually come. And so the fact that there are two steps here, maybe they can take this look, this outlook that you're suggesting, Ed. Um, but I think that for the religious person, it has to be something very concrete. It has to be a person. There is an interesting movie called Kumaray, where basically um, and kind of Indian background American says, wait, everybody is so interested in these uh, new religious movements and wants to do yoga and everything, and he has no connection whatsoever. But he said, okay, what would I need to do in order to become a religious charismatic leader? And so basically he goes to India and talks to a couple of people and uh, buys himself orange clothing and lets his beard grow, goes back to the States and makes up a uh, yoga studio and says, I'm offering blue light meditation, which is something he just invented, and just t uh, twists his body in one way or another and says that it will really help you. And he tra attracts quite a lot of followers. And the movie depicts how people actually see something in him. And his message all along is, you are actually the guru. I'm not the guru. It's all in you. It's all in yourself. And I don't want to spoil it, really. But in, in the end, he comes back to them and 
tells them, okay, I'm I'm actually just a guy who had his beard grown and like who gave you some incense. Frankly, why do we even need a messiah? Perhaps I should have started with this question, but what's the answer? So I think what the Messiah promises is a breaking of the rules and of the laws that pull people down, hold them back, and that they're suffering under. So I think the idea of a Messiah is often linked to certain, yeah, I think systems of oppression or or lack of success, unhappiness, um, people feeling caged, and that can have all sorts of dimensions. So psychologically, we need a Messiah. Well, in a sense, I would say perhaps the Messiah is also a testament to the beauty of human imagination. We make up what we can't see in the world. We imagine it for the future. We visualize a world where things happen, where reality is completely different, where we can escape from the everyday because we're perhaps because men are often oppressed uh, or because simply we try to join the dots of all that we can understand through our imagination. The Messiah represents the biggest leap in imagination and faith in putting together all the dots and imagining an answer coming that will explain the complexity of the world. I have a much more simple answer. I think it derives from the fact that we have a linear perception of time. And um, in this linear perception, we need time to move forward. We need humanity to move forward. And the Messiah gives us this idea of hope, um, that things are getting better and they will get better. And at the top of the stairs will be this man that will come and lead us to the best of the best of times that we could imagine. So I think it, it does derive from a psychological need that we're moving forward, that things are going to get better, that we're leaving chaos behind us as the human race. But there's also, um, just briefly introducing kind of how sociology views that, the dialectic between the prophet and the priest. So uh, Max Weber talks about the difference in uh, in the authority and where the authority comes from. So on the one hand, where the priest is kind of administrating an institution and often has the monopoly on salvation, the prophet, interestingly, sociologically, often does not come from the priestly profession, but actually comes from the outside and necessarily in one way or another breaks with that tradition, institutionalizes something new. But then often what happens is that the prophet's hood actually uh, becomes more priestly by the ages. And that's how we have the new religious traditions that become traditions in and of themselves. So I think these are two interesting figures to think through the respective movements that we see. And thinking about the Christian story and the description of Christ as the high priest, you know, is there an element of both the, the, the kingly nature and the prophetic nature in the story of Jesus? Absolutely. I think we see what I would interpret as definitely conflicting evidence in the Gospels. On the one hand, you have the all the weight of the Jewish tradition, the signs, the, the prophecies and everything uh, really coming together in that one person. At the same time, he's traveling around, telling people to give up their families, to sell everything that they have, to uh, give everything to the poor, to have this non-stable, itinerant life that so much goes against the social norms of its age. So in a, in a sense, I would say uh, Jesus is the perfect figure that combines kind of actually that priestly, kingly element and the itinerant uh, political revolutionary. So he, he, he marks a change in time. And in the Jewish tradition, of course, also the Messiah also marks a change in time, a fundamental change in the human story. I think he marks the end almost of time as we know it, because the day the Messiah will come and the temple will be rebuilt, Judaism will shift back to what it was. 
um, from becoming a rabbinic uh, religion to becoming, again, one that is centered around a temple and around a practice that has a temple. But I think what it is interesting here is the idea that the coming of the Messiah, the coming back, is con- it has a deep relationship with the people, with the, that generation. That generation has to be pious and holy enough to deserve a Messiah. And so that's also an interesting interplay here between the Messiah. Whether he's a prophet or a king, that's not the question here. The question is, what have the people done to deserve a Messiah? And how holy and how good Jews or how well have they behaved um, to have the temple built in their daytime? And in the artistic sphere, do we find both the kingly and the prophetic aspect of the Messiah? What kind of di- what what diversity is there in representations of the Messiah? It is rare to see Jesus painted in a kingly fashion, and it's very interesting. Usually, the accent is on humility, poverty, and the sacrifice. But uh, the idea of the overlapping of the Messiah and the King makes me think, for instance, about Flemish depictions of the Virgin Mary. Um, with the child on the throne of Solomon and the overlapping with the lions. And it's a a very northern iconography, but it usually, um, it's very interesting, very uniquely Flemish. As you move further east, of course, the iconography becomes very rich. I'm thinking of the um, Orthodox churches and the sort of the rich, the golds and the deep reds. And to me, when I've visited to them, um, it feels very royal that I'm in the space of a king. Well, yes, there is this idea of the Basileus, the the emperor, the king. Um, But this is very typical of Orthodox Christianity, this accent on the gold, the light. They were all considered signs of uh, God. And I remember the description of Hagia Sophia when it is built. It's it's a, the typical Byzantine church. It is built with the idea that to show that almost the hand of God has worked on it. It is so beautiful and so magical. Its architecture is so complex. The movement of light on the surfaces so enthralling that the viewer, Procopius of Caesarea, for instance, says that it is almost like a god had made it and not man. This is something that is strikingly opposite to what Western art tends to do. It tends to show the action of men in building the edifice, the building of God. Well, we're coming towards the end, the end of this podcast, that is. And I I want to finish by asking you a question, each of you, which is, what would you do if the Messiah did arrive? Or did return because that's the at, at the the core of the the, the series Messiah and the struggle that um, people had with how they should react. I mean, Tobias. So two things. So first of all, um, I think there is an element of the Messiah walking with the people in my tradition, and often with those who are suffering, with the oppressed, with those that are hungry for justice. And so I think walking with whoever the oppressed people are and whoever those are that are hungry for justice is a is a very good way of finding, probably also identifying um, the Messiah. Uh, at the same time, I also think we can identify something messianic in a sense in, in every person. So I think not necessarily looking for a figure or a man or whatever, a leader, but really trying to find that what is divine or prophetic in every single human being, and especially those where we do not expect it. I think if somebody claimed to be the Messiah, I don't think I would believe them. (laughs) 
What would make you believe them? I'm not sure there is something that would make me believe that uh, somebody is the Messiah. I do think that um, when I think about messianism, the idea that I tend to relate to most is tikkun olam, is that we need to repair the world. We need to make this world as best as it can, not for our Messiah to come, but for us. And in that way, I'm very much not <laughs> representative of the Jewish faith. But I do I do have this sense, this feeling that, that it is more on us, and I don't need a Messiah to come for that. Well, in my case, um, as an atheist and someone who considers uh, perhaps doubt the highest sign of intelligence, I would find it very difficult to rely on one voice only. I'm used to split, you know, uh, the right and wrong into many people and multiple voices, multiple opinions. So I think, yes, I too would not believe perhaps in a Messiah and would insist on trying to find truth in the multiplicity of dialogue. Well, we might not have reached the second coming, but I'm afraid we've reached the end of this podcast. Thanks to my guests, Ilaria Bernocchi, Tobias Muller and Elisa Simon. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any comments, thoughts, feedback or reflections of your own, you can email reflections at nakedscientist.com. In the meantime, you can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Naked Reflections is also available wherever you get your podcasts. Do join us next time. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.